And we are back after a longer than planned break. Um, we are back with the Training Fable podcast. Go ahead and call this season three-ish. Um, been wanting to come back for a while, but um, things just never lined up and there weren't any topics that uh, were really exciting me or any guest. Um, so I was really excited to kick off this season with Jason Coop, the head coach of ultra running at CTS. Been trying to have Coop on for a while. I've been following him for a long time. Um, he's kind of has an opinion on everything and is not afraid to speak it. Um, this ended up being pretty long, but I think you'll enjoy it. So without further ado, enjoy. Welcome to Training Babble. I'm your host, Dave Shell, and today I'm excited to be joined by Jason Coop. Jason, thanks for joining me. Thanks for uh, having me on. I have to know, am, am I like one of the first people to like bring this podcast back to life? Because if so, that's, <laughs> that's a lot of pressure to put on me. <laughs> you are you are unofficially um, the opener to season three or okay. season two, depending on how you read it. So Okay. Oh, okay. That, that makes me feel a little bit <laughs> I can handle that. I can handle that pressure. <laughs> but I, I'm super excited to have you on, um, as I mentioned in the email. And it, I'll just give a little bit more uh, way of introduction for you, and you um, can elaborate on this. But you are the head coach of ultra running at CTS. You are the author of Training Essentials for Ultra Running. Um, you're the host of the Coopcast, Ultra Training Banter. And then um, I believe you also used to be head of education at CTS for coaches. Is that accurate or, or what was that title? Yeah, that's pretty close. I mean, I was the director of coaching and vice president of operations, which, I mean, that's just a completely over elaborate title to, to, <laughs> to try to communicate that I do a little bit of everything. I mean, I managed our, you know, 60 some odd person coaching department. I also did a lot of the B2B development with, you know, our partners and making sure the business could kind of run and expand. And as you mentioned, now my role is kind of pivoted to where there's a, there's a big enough uh, ultra running sphere, which it's kind of still incredible to me right now. Yeah, There's a big enough like ultra running influence where I can kind of compartmentalize that department and, and really make sure that that department flourishes. So are you still doing some of the coaching education as well? Within the ultra running department, yes, we've kind of reorganized uh, the coaching department so that we've got like the like an ultra running unit, a cycling unit, a triathlon uh, unit, and then it kind of rolls up to. We're actually hiring a new coaching development director that will more operationally organize all of those. Like all our coach, our coaches as a whole, very similar to very similar to what I did, but I do spend a lot of time hands-on does that word like completely outdated now <laughs> a lot of time one-on-one -on -one, hands-on or virtually like with coach coaches specifically in the ultra running uh sphere developing them not only from wherever they whatever point they kind of come into the whole process to getting them proficient but also on an ongoing basis making sure that we've got you know a cohesive coaching department where we all speak the same language and we are all on the same page. We're, you know, kind of quite literally reading from the same book and things like that. Right. And it, it, so I've, it's funny because I've never actually met you face to face, but I've, I've, <laughs> our, our paths have kind of crossed indirectly uh, many a time and I've always kind of been a fan. And I, I, I guess my impression of you and correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like you're pretty opinionated and not afraid to speak your mind on things. And so when you, when you have an opinion on something, you kind of, put your stake in the ground and, and you're not afraid to back it up. And and I appreciate that. And the other perception that I have of you is that you kind of boil things down to the essentials and 
try to keep it simple. Um, at least that's my impression, but both of those a gazillion percent true. And what I'll say, what I'll say to each one of those is I've kind of like earned that right to, to be, to be able to opine like that. It didn't start out like that. I mean, I, I started out from very, very humble beginnings. And as, as, as you'll know, and a lot of our mutual colleagues will know, you know, I came into remote-based endurance coaching kind of when it didn't really exist, or it certainly was very immature at the time. The, to- the tools and the technology were very rudimentary. Um, the, I, the, the best way that I can explain it, it to, is it took me about 10 years to accurately explain to my mother what I did for a living. <laughs> like it just was like this impossible thing because everybody had this notion of a coach as their, you know, their high school basketball coach that was physically there with a clipboard. And so throughout that whole process of, 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 of maturation over kind of last, you know, 20, 20 some odd years, I, 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 yeah, I've definitely, I think I've, the, that I've kind of earned the right to be opinionated as well as be open-minded at the same time. I want to make that clear. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. I change my mind on things all the time, but I'll have a strong opinion one way or the other on, on, on a lot of different topics. And I'm not afraid to call it like it is, you know, it's like I said, that's just part of my DNA That's part that that's part of my personality. So both, both of those, both of those descriptions are, 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 are accurate, but it's a byproduct of doing what I do for so long and, and really working at it as a craft. Which is, which I appreciate. And which is also why I wanted to have you on because, um, as I mentioned, when I reached out to you, so I've been trying to have you on for a while and the, you know, last time we talked was in December before the world fell apart. And, um, once everything kind of started happening, I just kind of put the, uh, podcast on pause. And then recently I was listening to your podcast and there are some things that just struck a chord. One of them was on low energy availability and the other was being a skeptic in sports science. And as I mentioned in the emails, the big reason I wanted to start a podcast is just that there's so much noise out there and I, I I never want to add to the noise. So I never feel this pressure to like put out a lot of content, but if I do put something out, I want to, I want it to be beneficial to people. I don't want to add to the noise, I guess. And so you kind of inspired me and I was like, okay, we've got to, we've got to get this on just so that we can um, hash out some of the things that uh, I've been curious about your opinion on. So um, yeah. So again, thanks for taking the time. I'll give it. Yeah. You want my opinion? People will know I'll give it to you. (laughs) So I guess place to start is one of the things I'm curious about is as in your role as a coach educator and, and, and mentor, what is one of the common things you see with new coaches? So like they come in, let's maybe they went, um, they've got a four year degree in like, um, physiology or exercise science. They come in, they're ready to start coaching what's one of the common things you see that you have to kind of course correct there? Well, for the ones that have exercise science degrees, and I, I kind of fell into this trap. I didn't have a proper exercise science degree, but I had a genetics and biochemistry degree uh, when I first started coaching. Um, It's one of the things that they, one of the traps that they commonly fall into is taking some narrow area of physiology that, they either kind of like fell in love with during their schooling or for whatever reason they have an affinity towards and thinking that that is the key for everything. And that, that ironically enough, that's kind of become one of 
my like bullshit detectors when I'm out there in the space, whether I'm reading a lay article or out there kind of in the Twitter sphere or whatever in detecting if coaches and, and coaches fall into this category way more than the sports science people, but where their coaches kind of know their shit or not. And if they're taking like these really narrow physiological things like mTOR was a really big one, uh, you know, within the last, within the last four years and, and they're coaching their athletes specifically to improve or enhance that very narrow biochemical phenomenon or biochemical pathway without the context of what the body is doing as a whole coaches fall into that a lot. And it usually, it usually emanates from one of two perspectives. The first one is what you mentioned the the coach comes from sports science background. They're fresh out of school. And that's like the last thing they learned, you know, so you can't blame them for that. You know, it's the last thing they learned. It's the first thing on their mind. And, and, and you have to back up, you have to broaden out the lens a little bit and go, okay, it's not all about mTOR. You know, let's, let's, let's think about the athlete as a whole, but coaches fall into this trap from another perspective. And that's when they don't have a sports science background and they're genuinely trying to learn what's going on and how different stresses affect the body. And it's very easy to go down these rabbit holes when you're doing research and you're trying and you, and you are genuinely trying to figure something out. And as a byproduct of going down that rabbit hole, you get overly fixated on this very narrow end point. And in either one of those cases, that's a coaching error because the body is always more complex than one single mechanism. Now, some mechanisms are incredibly important. If we're studying, you know, if we're studying, uh, uh, if we're studying glycolysis, you know, we can look at phosphofructokinase as the rate limiting step in glycolysis. That's incredibly important within that one bioenergetic pathway. But if you're coaching an athlete and say, oh, well, you know, I'm going to upregulate their phosphofructokinase with this one single workout. It's like, really, that's how they're going to win. They're going to win because of that one mechanism. No, they're not going to win because of that one mechanism. They're going to win because of a multifactorial approach with preparing them. So with our young coaches, typically what we're trying to do is, you know, first and foremost, kind of like standardize, not standardize, but make sure that we're all on the same page in terms of our thought process and what types of workouts are efficacious and what types of practices are efficacious and which ones are not. But very commonly they have a very narrow lens on, 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 on performance. That's the first thing. The second, the second thing, and this is a, I think that this is a really hard thing to do because it's at least a necessary evil at first is they want to practice coaching in a paint by numbers approach, meaning they want a template and they want to use that template and just, and they want to use it for 10 athletes and they want to just switch one variable, you know, on every single athlete, you know, Tuesday's the rest day instead of Monday's the rest day or something like that. And I can very well remember, and you, and, and, and you and I have enough history where you probably remember a, a, a little bit of this, um, a little bit of this history as well, where, uh, w CTS, we had our own self-contained coaching technology where we built it, we brought on software engineers to build it. And I helped those software engineers build it. And we made a monumental shift in that philosophy over the course of a couple of years from, we had a piece of technology that was trying to leverage coaches on the order of one coach to about 200 or even 300 athletes. 
And the way that we d- we would do that was on a lot of automated types of processes, right? right? We'd have standard templates. We'd push those, t- the coach would get the athlete in the right template, and then they would modify it in some way. And that increased their leverage, right? This was a business thing. We made a monumental shift and we said, you know what? We don't believe in this product. We don't believe in this really high coach to athlete uh, or athlete to coach ratio because it's a, it's just not a good product. And we changed our coaching technology, our underlying coaching technology, such that they had to build everything by hand, not everything, most of the things by hand. And there was a certain sliver of our coaches across swimming. So, so coaches that had, that had kind of like drifted into working with a lot of triathletes and they were, they were deficient across the swim discipline that just freaked out <laughs> because they couldn't program swim workouts. They were overly reliant on this paint by numbers approach that we had intentionally put in there in order to increase leverage. But then we subsequently removed and what it really showed what that whole chain of events really demonstrated is that when you're over-reliant on patterns that you have either picked up from your college coach or from a mentor or you've read in runner's world or, you know, bicycling magazine or something like that. And you're taking those templates and using this paint by numbers approach to coach athletes. You never really understand what's going on because once you remove that template or that, that paint by numbers approach, you're kind of, you, you, you have no basis for where the workout should go. So those are the two big things that we try to, that we try to course correct with our, with our coaches is getting them to broaden their lens out to a bigger picture, as opposed to the one, the one narrow minded uh, mechanism. And the second one is trying to, I'm, I'm going to totally make, make up a word, try, try to disingrain, unengrain. What do I try to say there? <laughs> try, 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 trying to get them such that they are not using so much of a paint by numbers approach based on whatever background they have, whether it's a previous coach that they're patterning things off of, something that they've read or whatever, get them to think for themselves. Yeah. It, it, so that brings up an interesting point in that now there seems to be a trend um, towards more automated algorithms, right? And that if we just it, machine learning, big data, things like that, and it's it, it's kind of interesting for me to see, but I listening to you right now, it's like you're never going to be able to solve for that, right? You're going to get 80% of the way there, and yeah, you're going to adjust for some workouts and things like that, but there's things that just can't be captured, Um in the data that are going on with these athletes, whether it's life stress or work stress or not sleeping well, things like that. And so I'm just curious, what are your thoughts on the future of, of that kind of automated training plan? Well, that's a big, like loaded question there. (laughs) So first off, I, I, I think that there's, that there is a place in a use case for static training plans and what I'll call like modifiable training plans, meaning a training program that's developed and some components of it, components, plural, get modified to the level of the individual. And that could be as simple as, Hey, I want my rest day on Tuesday instead of Monday. That's a really simple one. Or I can handle 12 hours a week of volume versus 11 hours a week volume. Some things, things along those lines. There are use, there are absolute use cases for that. And they can absolutely be efficacious across certain swaths of athletes. When we get to the elite spectrum, it's probably not as appropriate or appropriate at all. And I think when we get to the beginner perspective, it probably becomes more appropriate. There's a, there's a grading there. That's different 
whether or not it's appropriate for the athlete, that's way different than having a coach lean on them to actually coach athletes. And I, I think that th- I think that 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 difference needs to be explicitly pointed out. Delivering a static training program or some training program that adapts in some way, simply delivering that to an athlete, that's not coaching. That's schedule delivery. And there's a thousand different ways that you can do that. You can tear a page out of a magazine and put it up on your refrigerator. You can write it out yourself. You can copy and paste your friends. You can steal your friend's training log and then just regurgitate it. I mean, there's a there's there's so many different iterations of delivering a static training program and then modifying it slightly. You've really kind of got your got your choice. And almost all of them are well intended and reasonably well constructed. I will take issue with the rationale behind some of the workout architecture. Like, okay, this workout's a speed workout or this workout's a cardiovascular workout. That's just the coach regurgitating something and not really knowing how it affects the the athlete's physiology in 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 a, in a correct manner. But it's still going to it still probably has the right amount of work in the right amount of rest and the athlete will improve. Could they improve better if something was more precise? That's another kind of case in point. So that's just a really long winded way to say there's a, there's, there's a time and a place for these static and or modifiable types of, of training programs that, that, that are delivered to, uh, that are delivered to the athlete, but the coaches that are going to survive and the athletes that are going to thrive in the next five to 10 years, I think are going to be the ones that understand what's going on more. Because if artificial intelligence is going to come in and deliver coaching or training, depending upon your point of view, (laughs) coaching or training to athletes in this mass automated way, what it's going to do is it's going to put more pressure on the coaches that don't know their shit and can't explain what's going on to their athletes. And it's going to put the highlight on the coaches that really can do it in a proficient and accurate manner and make those coaches more valuable. So if anything, and this, this sounds super counterintuitive to, um, to a lot of people that might be listening, I'm actually a proponent for this technology, artificial intelligence, whatever can enhance the athlete experience from a, from obviously from an end user standpoint, like if it positively affects the athlete or athletes, I'm an advocate for it. I'm a coach at the end of the day. So however the athlete can improve in an ethical manner, great. Let's, let's, let's do that. But even from a business perspective, once again, I do this for a living from a business perspective, I could very easily look at this and go, Oh my God, the robots are coming. Like, you know, my job's in jeopardy. Well, is me, blah, blah, blah. I think, I think that that type of development is good for coaching as a business because it's going to put the spotlight on the coaches that know their shit and the coaches that are just faking their way through it for whatever reason. And that's another rant that I can go down. The coaches that are faking it for whatever reason, they're going to get pushed out of the marketplace because they don't intimately understand the underpinnings of what's going on. And they're going to be overly reliant on these, uh, on these automated mechanisms once they come out. Right. So that's a good segue to um, something that I've kind of heard you say in, in multiple times over the last uh, couple of weeks when I was listening to your podcast again is 
you have all these examples of coaches kind of getting in the weeds with stuff, right? And they're they're trying to improve an athlete through altitude training or trying to the new technology or some new piece of equipment, things like that. And and for you, it always comes back to fitness makes everything better. And so I'm sure there's a more elaborate explanation to that, right? And I, I guess my feeling on that is that, yeah, once once you're looking for that last 2%, then looks then then let's look for marginal gains. But until you're there, until you've run out of every other option, fitness should be the focus. And so from your perspective, I guess when you say fitness makes everything better, um, elaborate on that a little bit. <laughs> I don't think if it, I don't think it needs that much. <laughs> I mean, like going back to the theme that I harp on, you mentioned this, you know, several minutes ago is I do think that we need to keep things simpler and keeping it as simple as fitness makes everything better. It probably doesn't need a better explanation that we can go in one. If you want to go into the physiology weeds of it, let's just take one, let's just take one area, right? With, with, uh, heat acclimatization, I can go and I can have an athlete do a heat acclimation protocol in a few different efficacious ways. We can put them in a sauna. We can put them in a sauna after they have actually exercised. We can use a hot water immersion bath either on its own or after they exercise. There's, there's a few different things. All this other crap, I'm going to have them run in a, you know, sweatsuit layered with a rain suit in the middle of the day with no water, like kind of over contriving the situation. You know, I'm in the ultra marathon world and, and part of the, one of the, points of indoctrination <laughs> that I had in the ultramarathon world was being exposed to the bad water ultramarathon kind of very early, early on when I started working with ultra runners. And so w- when I started working with athletes that were doing bad water, now how I actually fell into this situation, the bad water is 135 mile race at the time. And at the time it was done in the middle of the day in death Valley in the middle of summer. So you're going to the hot, literally the hottest part in, on the planet They have the highest recorded temperature on the planet at the hottest time of day, at the hottest time of year, and you're running 135 miles in that. And so athletes would do all of these like asinine, you know, all use all of these asinine protocols in order to acclimate to the heat. They would get in their, you know, in their washer dryer room, in their laundry room disconnect the dryer vent, put it in their face, roll their treadmill in there and then run and then put their rain suit on. It's just like, how many different ways can you do this? So, I mean, back, back, kind of back to your point is I'll take that heat, all of those heat acclimation things and say, okay, here are the things that work, but I'm not going to implement them if they impact the athlete's fitness. So if we can implement all of those, any of those heat strategies, any of the efficacious ones that I mentioned, the four efficacious ones at the very beginning with sauna and hot water immersion, if we can implement those in any way, and at the same time, not compromise the athlete's ability to become more fit, we can achieve that Goldilocks situation, then I'll do it. If we can't do that, the fitness is more important because fitness automatically can help you cope with the heat automatically, like without the specific 
without the specific heat acclimation protocol. You get more fit, you can you can cope with the heat. You have more blood volume, therefore you can uh, therefore you can uh, dissipate more heat radiantly. You have more stuff to s- send to the blood skin surface. You can tolerate you know probably bigger body uh, body water losses. On and on and on and on. There's all these physiological underpinnings for when you are fit, these things happen and therefore these things impact your ability to exercise and perform in the heat. You can maximize those and then look at whatever you get from the heat stress protocol or, or, or whatever it is. So that's what I mean is like fit fitness kind of rules the day and it's accentuated in, in, in com- competitive environments that are, are either extremely hot or at high altitudes where we want to over contrive the training situation specifically for those environments you're exercising this happens in ultra marathoning all the time the competition is at a high altitude it goes up above eight thousand feet ten thousand feet or whatever well i have to go and run at altitude no you don't like it doesn't like what does that actually do for you so anyway i i kind of keep boiling it down to this get as fit as possible and then add these other things in because fitness is like your first point of translation into those not only into the performance, which is natural, but also into the other environments, which creates the performance context. Okay. So what are your opinions? And I feel like I already know the answer to this and you kind of already spoke to it, but um, specificity, right? And I feel like that's what people are trying to get at when all of a sudden they're, and, and it happened a lot with power meters too, is that all of a sudden you have this way to quantify the demands of an event. And so you get these intervals that are like, okay, you need to do two minutes here and then 30 seconds here, and then you need to do 15 on 50. So yeah. <laughs> what are your well, thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, I want, I have a really interesting perspective on it. I'm going to broaden that, that the answer to that question out a little bit, because yeah, I can answer whatever I want to. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I mean, you and I, we had a first row seat to the way that power meters revolutionized and sometimes for the worse, the way that we thought about training athletes for events, because you're absolutely correct. At one point we were kind of guessing at what the demands of the event were. We'd look at, you know, heart rate files and maybe even speed files and even the elevation profile for, you know, for uh, a road race or stage race or something like that. And we'd say, okay, the athlete is going to be at, you know, right around threshold for this amount of time. They're going to be, they're not pedaling for that amount of time. They have, you know, high intensity effort for eight minutes or whatever it is. We're kind of guessing at it. But when athletes started using power meters, particularly when they got light enough and uh, conducive enough to actually use in races, it, it revolutionized the way that we could analyze what was actually going on during the race. But what we're seeing now is that because that, that extremely powerful tool we've lost, we're not seeing the, we're not seeing the forest through the trees. We're looking at the tree of, okay, you know, I want to do this 15 second on 15 second off interval because that's what I saw at the end of this race. But the forest is, you need to make sure that their cardiovascular system is developed, that they have a good high max power. And what are the workouts that are more conducive to those physiological properties versus what are the workouts that are going to mimic the race? So I, I think, and this is just an opinion, I think that the tide has kind of moved too far into the, we're trying to mimic the demands of the race too much without focusing on the physiological underpinnings first. And so one of the strategies that we use across 
all athletes in all sports. It doesn't matter if you have a power meter or not, cyclist, runner, triathlete, is that we move from, we use a periodization structure. Periodization is not even the right word for this. I got to come up with a better word for it. Framework? Framework, yeah. We we use a, a way of organizing training that goes from less specific to more specific as the training goes along chronologically. So if you have an event in September or October, yeah, you might be doing those types of really specific work that mimic the exact race conditions close to that event. That's absolutely a way to do that. But far away out from the event, you're working on things that will overall develop your fitness. You're doing classic VO2 max intervals. You're trying to build your base, kind of what, whatever the overarching strategy is. And what I think the, the, the balance of things has started to shift towards is that specificity phase is like 12 months out of the year because we know what the data is, right? We have this incredibly, it's on the cycling side, we have this incredibly powerful tool where we know what the data is. So it's like specificity all the time, every time at the expense of overall fitness. So Anyway, um, I do, I do think that, that, that to get back to your question, that specificity is, is, is important, but we should, we should not be blinded to the fact that overall fitness capabilities, what is your, what is your power at threshold? What is your power duration curve actually look like? And this is what technology has actually helped with, like looking at these types of properties, what does your power duration curve actually look like? And what areas of it do you need to accentuate during certain times of years? That's where we need to like kind of get back to the balance of and actually see the fitness forest through the specificity trees. I'm going to trademark that. Don't, don't like use that again. I'm going to write it down here and use it in an article. See the fitness forest through the specificity trees. I love it. <laughs> so I, I've mentioned this before, and, and I'm sure you agree on this. I feel like one of my biggest jobs as a coach, and I've always felt this way, um, is kind of debunking or swatting down when athletes come with come to me with, I just read this article, or I just saw this, or I just heard this. But I would say over the last two years, it's just coming f- like so much faster And whereas before it used to be like every few weeks or something, I feel like, uh, or every few months now, I feel like it's every week or every couple of days. And it's like, Oh, I just heard I should be doing, I I just heard I should be doing this. And, um, you had just talked about when, when, you know, power meters first came and there's this idea of this hype curve. Um, and I've got a picture of it over here and I, uh, Steven Seiler posted it and I think about it all the time and it's on the Y axis is expectations. And on the X axis is time. And it's basically, you've got the innovation trigger, peak of inflated expectations, trough of disillusionment, slope of enlightenment, and plateau of productivity. And I feel like right now, there's so many things that have come out in the last year or two that there's so many things that are at the peak of inflated expectations right now. And so um, I've got opinions on some of those things that uh, I, I feel like are there. But I'd be curious to know, like over the last year or so, what are some of the things that have come up that you're tired of batting down? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's certain. So that curve where we initially get really excited about something and that something could be a training intervention. Hey, I'm going to do these specific types of workouts. That something could be a recovery modality. Hey, I really like 
these compression boots or I really like the supplement or whatever. We initially get really amped up about it because there is always a degree of, there's always a kernel of truth associated with it. And there are usually people that have, um, uh, that have experienced the intervention and had a, had a positive experience with it. I, this had, I took supplement X and I had a great experience. I was able to come back the next day and do blah, 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 blah. Then once more people start to do the intervention or take the supplement or whatever, those expectations get get tamped down a little bit because it's not universal across everybody. And then we realize a happy medium for actually, you know, where the use cases are and we start to figure out the nuance in the intervention itself or whatever we're trying to do. That happens all the time. That's happened throughout my entire coaching career. Going back to the Endurox days of a four to one carbohydrate to protein, uh, carbohydrate to protein recovery drink that was supposed to be magical. Right. And I have a, I have a particular affinity for that just to go down a, a personal anecdote because one of our coaches, Kathy Zawatsky did her master's research at the university of Texas underneath John Ivy and helped to proliferate this idea that four to one is magic. And it turns out it's not, but at the time we kind of thought it did. I mean, that was an error that all of us, including me raising my hand, all of us kind of partaked in for a short period of time. So, so, so that happens a lot. And I don't think, and I think it's going to, uh, and I think that it's going to continue to get harder and harder and harder to weed through that. And it does for me. And I, and you know, I'm in the industry. I've been in the industry for 20 years. It's even harder for lay people that are trying to discern fact from fiction because the information is getting thrown at them at such an incredible velocity. And they don't have the time to kind of, they don't have to the time to kind of weed through things. So I, I've got like this three point bullshit test that I apply whenever I'm out in the space and so, and I, most reasonable people can, I think can get a good fix on this. I don't think it's like, I don't think it's super endemic to coaches and physiologists. I think it could be applicable to, uh, ev like everyday athletes that are just curious and interested. You do have to do a, a kind of a little bit of homework. The first, the first part of this bullshit test is something that we just mentioned is that when somebody or something is focused on a very narrow biochemical or physiological mechanism to explain everything. That's your first bullshit test, right? I'm going to use this supplement, which upregulates mTOR and you're going to recover faster. Well, that might be part of the story. That might be a really narrow part of the story, but it certainly does not paint the recovery picture to its entirety or adaptation picture to its entirety. When you see things like that, or this is kind of the way that I take it more often than not. When I see an individual doing that, I can automatically not follow them on Twitter. Like you're doing that. You don't know your shit, like not following you on Twitter. And I'll discourage people from following you because that's a disingenuous way to promote this one single narrow mechanism. So that's, that's the first thing. The second thing, and this is more of a, once again, kind of a more people focused thing is that if they, if they misuse basic physiological terms, so they confuse exercise efficiency and economy, or they confuse aerobic threshold with the metabolic crossover point, like those things that somebody that a freshman 
in an exercise physiology program would know because they've got their textbook behind them. I have my textbooks behind me. I actually, actually do this in real time that they would know if the person that's purporting that information cannot correctly communicate those simple physiological terms. Once again, that's an unfollow on Twitter. So whatever they're promoting, just like throw it in the trash. If they don't know the difference between efficiency and economy, that's a little bit of a harder one for the lay person. And honestly, if you just brought a undergraduate level physiology textbook and you did it a few times across somebody you're following on Twitter and they get the vocabulary, right? That's a pretty good, that's a, that's a pretty good litmus test. That's the second one. How do we go down this rabbit hole? <laughs> uh, anyway, the third, the third one, and this is once again, when you're trying to evaluate, when you're trying to evaluate fact from fiction, uh, and, and people are the ones communicating that, right? They're either like giving a presentation or they wrote an article, or you see something that they're promoting on Twitter or whatever. The third one, and I, I actually, I love this one more than any of them. I'm going to probably bump it up to the top of the list the next time I explain this. And this is the overuse of analogies to explain something. If you can't explain what's going on with a workout, a training intervention, or like we were talking about earlier, a heat stress protocol in plain everyday terms and have the listener or the audience understand that without using a bajillion analogies to relate blood flow to the oil in your car and sweat rate to, I don't even know what, like all of these things that you see and you see, you're laughing because you see people do this on and on and on and on and on. What that demonstrates is a fundamental under understanding. They don't understand those, those mechanistic underpinnings of what they're actually trying to do. And the way that they compensate for that is some clever, it's usually clever, some clever analogy to plug the holes for which they don't know in the first place. So I think if, if people, when they're evaluating stuff on Twitter, or Instagram, or Facebook, or something their buddy did or showed them or whatever, if they kind of like go through this checkpoint, it, it'll filter out a lot of the nonsense. It might not get you to the right answer all the time, but at least the bullshit that's, that's out there, you can bat down a lot of that with just simply, is it a narrow mechanism trying to explain a very broad concept? Is the vocabulary correct? And are there a gazillion analogies that are being used to purport whatever it is? If you go through those three points, you can bat a lot of crap just right down to the ground, right from the get-go. So this seems like as good a time as any to ask you, who are some of the people you follow on Twitter that you've found to be reputable sources? Oh my gosh. I, I can't, I, well, I think a better one, let me just get the list to you for the listeners afterwards and you, and you can yeah. kind of put it on the show notes. I mean, my, 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 I'll pull it up right now. I think I only follow uh, less than 200, less than 200 people on Twitter. Um, and it's, be, and it's because I don't want to be flooded with all 288 people on Twitter. And it's, and it's because I don't want to be flooded with all this nonsense. And I've, and, and I, I don't block people, I mute people every once in a while. Cause it just like clogs my feet up, you know, but I want to keep the, I want to keep like the information list tight so I can, you know, find the diamonds through the duff essentially of, uh, of information. And so, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll share that. I'll share that curated list. I mean, I could, you know, go down 150 people right now. That wouldn't be, that, <laughs> wouldn't, be, that wouldn't be very interesting, but it is. So let me tell you what it's, let me tell you what it is, what, how I've come to that result. It's based on merit. 
So if I look at somebody who is disseminating information and that information is consistently accurate and efficacious, then I'll be like, okay, I can, I can trust this person for, for further information, not blindly trust them because they're always checking. I mean, just look at Tim Noakes, right? I mean, he at one time was the, one of the foremost respected, respected is the word I want to focus on. One of the most respected physiologists on the planet, on the planet. And I've bought his book 40 or 50 or 60 times to give to new coaches. Honest to God, it was part of a little package I gave to new coaches. Now he's a complete quack. That work, the lore of running can stand on its own two feet. It's still a great book. But if I were to continue to blindly rely on him for advice, I would, you know, I would think that, that carbohydrates cause cancer and that I shouldn't vaccinate, you know, children and things like that. It's just all this kind of nonsense that for whatever reason he's kind of spun into. So anyway, you can't, you still can't blindly follow those people. Um, but if they're relaying accurate, accurate and efficacious information, it starts as it, it has to be, I guess my point with that is, is the follow or receiving the advice has to be on merit and it's not on followers or hype because you can always artificially create followers and hype via a variety of different mechanisms. Sometimes the people aren't even trying to create the hype. The Twitter algorithms or the Instagram algorithms automatically do that for them because it's a self, it's like a self-feeding, you know, mechanism. They're giving you things that you are automatically interested in. So that's how I kind of come back to it as I look at somebody or look at something is it consistently accurate? Is it consistently efficacious? And then start to follow it from there. That's how I've kind of curated my my, my Twitter lists. Gotcha. Yeah, I'll, I'll be sure to put that on the show notes and I'll be curious to see. I, I, I don't know. I find that Twitter is definitely one of my main sources for information just because it's great to get it straight from the source's mouth. Um, but it's, a great to, it's a great tool to do that, to get it straight from the source's mouth. And a lot of times what will happen is so in the, I remember before, like before social media, we had to do a, a really meticulous job in, eva- in evaluating scientific literature. And we pushed it off on our poor interns. I did this for a few years, right? So we get all these physical journals in, you know, the, the actual journal itself, the physical, you know, 80 page, whatever it was. And we would copy off the articles that we thought were the most worthy and we'd send them around the office and then we'd kind of like sit down in a book club or whatever. But one of the things that, I, that one of the things that the listeners um, probably don't have the scope of is there will always, not always, but there will often be commentary and uh, counterpoints given and subsequent articles. And I've always found those very enlightening because they don't have to necessarily rise to the same level of research rigor that the initial piece of research had to, and and that's, and and that's fine, right? You always have to adhere to the scientific method and make sure you're following protocols and things like that. But the commentary, and this is what coaches are trying to do. They're trying to put research into action. The commentary provides a really good lens oftentimes on how to actually do that because it's just free flowing thought from the research group and people that are associated uh, with it. And what's happened with social media is instead of waiting for one journal to come out, counterpoint, another journal come out, another counterpoint and things like that, and kind of weeding through that dialogue, you get it instantaneously and sometimes in real time 
on Twitter and it can be extreme. It can be very enlightening as long as you know who to follow and you know who to don't and you know who not to follow and you can kind of like weed through that part. And that's the hard part. So the hard part used to be just waiting for things and like literally physically like weeding through the documents. Now it's kind of a weed through the people proposition, which is much more charged. And that's why it gets, that's one of the reasons why it gets so polarized right now. And people start yelling at each other is because when we were evaluating research, you know, before social media, we were evaluating the research and now we're forced to evaluate the people and that always makes it personal. Right. Right. So, um, as I mentioned, there's a few things that I find are, the things that I'm batting down most recently or, or kind of um, battling with. And so I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts on some of these. So I want to hear this. I totally <laughs> want to hear this. <laughs> <laughs> the, the first one um, is HRV and oh, man. you know, and I, I totally get it. And it's like, we all want both as athletes and coaches, we want something, we want a single number that's going to tell us what we should do tomorrow or what the optimal training is, things like that. And so I, I get why we're always pursuing this Holy grail. Um, but in my experience, uh, one, I found it to be super inconsistent and doesn't correlate with the athlete's um, subjective feelings. So whether they're reporting they slept terribly or they just don't feel well or fatigue is really high, I haven't, I haven't been able to find a consistent correlation. Um, and that's across multi- measuring it multiple ways. Um, so that's one thing that I've dealt with. Can we stop there? Yeah. Because <laughs> I can't, I'm not going to be able to, free, I'm not going to be able to remember that if you go on to another one. <laughs> no, that's <laughs> like a little bird brain here. No, that totally works. To, yeah. Yeah. You have to work with me. <laughs> okay. So any of the, any of the, anything that's trying to accomplish what HRV is trying to accomplish, which is you're trying to give the athlete and a coach a, a stoplight type of system to work with, to say, go easy, go hard, go medium or whatever. Anytime you're doing that with whatever variable you're doing it with, it always needs to be one component of many to determine what to actually do. And so the error with that, or even with resting heart rate, we used to do the same thing with resting heart rate 15 years ago, same exact thing is to say, okay, your resting heart rate is 10% above what it normally is. You can't work out hard, you know? Letting the soul, letting one single variable, this goes back to my bullshit test, right? Letting one single variable be the sole determinant of a complex process, which is go hard is a very complex process. We make it sound very easy, but really there's a lot of things involved with it. There's psychology, there's physiology, how much fuel stores you have, how hot it is, all that kind of stuff. If you're using this one single physiological variable, in your case, heart rate variability to determine whether to go hard or go easy or you know, go medium. That's such a thing. <laughs> that's the, that's the error because you're doing the exact same thing that I mentioned earlier. You're taking a very narrow physiological phenomenon, which is a good one. I'm not saying it's a bad one. I think it's a good physiological parameter to measure in some cases, but if you have a coach who can interpret all of that, it's going to provide better context. And the better way to interpret that is it's on the individual level. So you have to look at the individual's range of heart rate variability across a, like a Bayesian statistical method, which who the fuck knows how to do that. Right. I mean, you give like the average athlete that, that has bought a whoop strap. They don't know how to, how to use Bayesian statistics. They're looking at their whoop score going, oh yeah, 190 is good. You know, 180 is good or whatever it is. They're not tracking that longitudinally, which you need to do 
and then bring in the workout context, the my boss yelled at me context, I lost my dog and I was looking for it for two hours context, like all that other stuff. Like it's very hard to, 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 to automate those processes into these simple uh, stoplight systems. So anyway, the, the, the better value, the better way to, to use that type of tool is A, as one component of many of what you're trying to determine whether to go hard, what easy or whatever that workout is. And the second one is, is you have to, you have to narrow it down to the level of the individual and what their range is over the, over a longitude, over long, over long periods of time, not just a single snapshot. So that's heart rate variability. <laughs> you can go on to your next one because I had to get that all out before I forgot it. Well, and I just want to add on to that too, that I think the, the accuracy of the way it's being measured um, that just introduces another issue with it, right? And that if it's not being measured the same time every day or if it's not being measured consistently from day to day, then how can you trust that number? 100%. You know? 100%. Uh, 100%. But here's the thing. here, And and so in, in trail and ultra running, we have this issue where everybody wants to take their heart rate off of a, off of a wrist-based heart rate, heart rate monitor, which is terrible. I mean, it's just, it's, I don't understand how the engineers have even let that into products right now. They're just so bad. And so a lot of coaches, and I've been accused of this as well. A lot of coaches will say, well, you know, you know, heart rate's not very useful and, you know, blah, 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 and it's inaccurate and things like that, which I've always come back with. The engineers will fix that. The engineers will come up with better hardware to more accurately measure whatever you're going to measure. You still have the variables of you got to take it consistently, same time of day, same store stretch, all that, all that kind of stuff. Absolutely. But don't become deficient. And this is a point of, this is a point of like mentorship or counsel that I give a lot of coaches and athletes. Don't become deficient in learning about a way to evaluate what's going on just just because the hardware is not there yet just because that that piece doesn't exist because those problems can be solved they might not be solved tomorrow but two or three years from now that might be solved and if you have a basis of information to work with because you've studied and you've researched it thoroughly you're going to be ahead of the curve once it actually did get introduced going back to our power meter days right i mean you remember when power meters all of a sudden went from you know, eight pounds and $8,000 <laughs> to one pound and $1,000. I mean, that, that did, that happened fairly quickly in the coaches that knew how to use power meters from the days when they were really obtrusive to use with an athlete were ahead of the curve for like two or three years compared to the coaches that said, ah, they're too heavy and I can't get the information and blah, blah, blah. Those things, they got, they got fixed. They got fixed. Same thing's going to happen with heart rate variability. Same thing's going to happen with all these other things that we're just kind of annoyed with right now. It just takes time. <laughs> That's a very fair point. I have to, it, it, I used to teach a class for coaches and I remember when we first started doing it um, six, seven years ago, we would ask and we'd say, who has a power meter? And maybe one or two coaches would raise their hand who coaches somebody with power meter. And maybe one person would raise their yeah. hand. And yeah. over the course of four years, you'd ask who has a power meter and the, everybody raised oh. their hand just because the price came down and they became so. A hundred percent. We point. used, we used it in marketing. So we used the fact that all of our coaches knew how to coach people with a power meter. It was so novel at one point 
that we created marketing campaigns around it. We're the only coaching company where all of our coaches know how to use a power meter and blah, blah, blah. And now like, it's just so, it's just so de facto. And so, you know, so routine that if you put a marketing program together that said, Oh, I know how to use a power meter. They'd be like, well, fuck Like what else? Like, of course you know how to use a power meter. Like, what are you kidding me? But it wasn't that long ago where it was more novel to where it created a point of differentiation across uh, our coaching, uh, coaching services that we could actually kind of lean on it. It'll be similar. Power meter is kind of a unique, situation but it'll be similar across some (laughs) caveat the hell out of this it'll be similar across some other types of of monitoring where some of them will rise to the top more naturally because the 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 market will determine all this stuff right the market will determine what has efficacy and what has value and what doesn't some of those will rise to the top and I am not in the prediction game. Otherwise I'd be like making this stuff up in my freaking garage. I can't figure this out. So some of those will rise to the top and actually be extremely useful to athletes similar to not the exact same, but similar to the way power meters re- kind of have replaced and augmented heart rate monitor training. And the coaches and athletes that understand what underpins them will have an immediate advantage once that hardware does get better and get more prevalent. Right. All right, so so the next um, airing of grievances. Um, I'm I'm surprised you remembered what number two was after it, the first. No, time. I definitely do. <laughs> and so I, I would just love your opinion on this because I feel like I definitely feel like I have an opinion, but I don't. I, but I still feel like the jury's still out. Um, okay. And so it's just fasted training. I feel like it's very oh, on fuck. vogue right now. And 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 tell. I guess my interpretation of it is that. <laughs> basically any bit, any, any benefit you get from it might be counteracted by the deleterious effects. And so I don't know. Um, once you (laughs) give me your thoughts on fasted training. Well, so, you know, you, I'll be blunt, right? (laughs) Stick that we've kind of played up so far. It's real stick. (laughs) Um, There's such a thing. I, I think it does not have a place in endurance athletics. I do not, I do not think that it's an efficacious. uh, Yeah. I don't think that it's an efficacious way to, to train. I think that the benefit that any small benefits, as you mentioned, that you get from that are, are not only washed away, but counteracted by the deleterious ones. And I, well, I, I don't know. And I, I just want to point out too, that this is coming from an ultra running coach where yeah. the majority of your athletes are performing like aerobic threshold and below <laughs> over right. like way 12 below. to 24 way hours. Below. Right. Yeah. Way below so, like 40 or 50% of VO2 max. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's typical to run for a reasonable, a, a reasonable person lead athlete. Maybe they can run two hours of it close to the threshold or something like that, but very low intensity, I guess, I guess is the point. And it's become sexy. All of these, all of these ways to optimize fat metabolism have become sexier and sexier in the ultra endurance world. And it, it's, it's because of a lot of things that we mentioned earlier, there is a plausible, there is a plausible mechanism for action. If you can burn more fat, you have more fat available and you have to be less reliant on carbohydrates and, and, and all those other things. And you can, in one of the ways that people are trying to achieve this enhanced fat metabolism is through 
train the training while fasted. Um, I don't think that that's the best way if you want to optimize fat met- metabolism. So let's just say that's one of your goals with an athlete. You would say, okay, how can we actually accomplish this? We can take this strategy. We can take that strategy. I think intermittent fasting should be not only the last, but it should be so far behind all of the other strategies that it shouldn't even come into the fold. I mean, you can manipulate with diet very easily, right? You can do uh, low glycogen type of training where you're doing a two, uh, you know, two a day, um, uh, two a day type of training where you're going into the second, uh, second workout slightly depleted. You can do an endurance run or endurance ride after an overnight fast, and that wouldn't be, you know, too deleterious. But the concept of doing a hard and or a long activity intentionally in a very depleted state, I don't think that that type of training strategy rises to the level of effectiveness to where you can throw it into the mix. Because going back to fitness is king, you are certainly not getting more fit. You're not developing your cardiovascular engine to the same extent as if you had some fuel on board because the total amount of work per unit time or the total amount of work or the work per unit time is going to be reduced. So therefore the stress on the body is reduced and therefore the adaptations after afterwards are reduced. Then you add on to the fact that it's really hard to do that. And especially in a running situation and just not get hurt. So you continually beat this intermittent fasting protocol and you can compromise your bone health. You can be suspect to any of the myriad of deleterious things that can happen with low energy availability, which is already problematic in an ultra running perspective. You're always in a caloric deficit when you're going out for a six hour run. There's no way that you can keep on keep track of it. So this, so if you're saying I'm going to double down on that by not taking any, any food, it doesn't work like that. (laughs) There's a tipping point. It goes back to the other point. So anyway, that was just, I I think that was more of a ramble that (laughs) there are. So I, I, I think there are, and the research teases this out that even if you're using intermittent fasting to enhance your fat oxidation capabilities, there are better and safer ways to do that than to do fasted training sessions. So do those first. And I guarantee you, you will run through the ones that have higher degrees of efficacy and are safer before you get to the, the really long, really hard fastest stuff, fasted stuff. So, so quick follow-up question on that, just because you brought up a point that I'm curious about is you just mentioned that the majority of the time you're already in a caloric deficit, right? And so, um, Inigo San Milan, he, he's done a lot of, um, research around glycogen and stuff. And I, I remember one of the research subjects who's a pro cyclist said that he was just constantly on him. You need to eat more pasta. You need to eat more bread because even if you are refueling after your workouts, chances are you're not replenishing all that glycogen. So without doing a a twice a day workout or whatever, even if over the course of a week, by the time you get to Sunday, chances are you're in a lower glycogen state than you were starting Tuesday, right? And after a few days off. And so I imagine you're still getting some of those benefits because you just can't take on all the calories you need to over a long ride or something along those lines. So it's, I mean, it's hard to. I mean, you know, if you, if I go out, I weigh 70 kilograms, I'm a normal size person 
and I go and I run 10 minute miles around my neighborhood, right? 10 minute miles around my neighborhood. I'm burning about 600 calories, 650 calories an hour. Not all of that is coming from carbohydrate, but over half it's probably coming from carbohydrate, or let's just say it's half. That's 300 calories an hour. I'm not going to take in three gels an hour if I'm just running an easy 10K around my house. Right. You know, I mean, it's, it's almost so my point with that is, is that even in normal endurance situations, it's almost impossible to keep up with the rate of glycogen depletion. You're always going to have some level of glycogen depletion. And the, one of the reasons that all of these enhanced ways to upregulate fat metabolism, metabolism have become sexy, in particular in the ultra endurance and the ultra marathon space, is, beca is because of that proposition. And I always come back to the fact that if you're just endurance training, you're going to be a more fat adapted athlete. Just endurance training, just the volume of endurance training that you do upregulates your fat metabolism capabilities. Yes, you can do things on top of that, but th that's the very proverbial, it, or it can get into the very proverbial marginal gains because the training volume creates so much of that adaptation from the get-go that once you start to add these little things, you have you then very carefully and cautiously have to look at both the positives and the negatives. Okay, so I go into a fasted training run. I might be able to upregulate my fat metabolism by 3%. Okay, so what does that mean calorically? If I'm spending 600 calories an hour, that's an extra 18 calories <laughs> that I'm getting from fat. Does that make a difference over Two the grams. course of a... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> does that make a difference over the course of a 12-hour or a 24-hour or a 100-mile run? That extra 3%. Okay. Is it meaningful? Okay. Let's just say it is right. Let's just say we work that math out and it is meaningful. Now, what are the downsides? Okay. Well, I've increased my chances of getting injured by 5%. Let's just say that is okay. So instead of getting injured, you know, 15 days out of the year, I'm going to get injured 17 days out of the year or 16 days out of the year. That one day could mean just as much from an outcome perspective as the 3% that metabolism increase that you got from the training intervention. And so that's where I think coaches and athletes need to take a little bit more of a cautious and conscientious approach with these types of training inter interventions, because they're, they're oftentimes not all upsides that are associated with it. There are oftentimes downsides and um, even opportunity costs, you could be doing something else, right, with your time. So in the in the intermittent fast or in the in the in the fasting ana analogy, what if you just trained harder? Where's the adaptation there? Like, what's the improvement if you just trained harder because you're fed? You're leaving that on the table. That's the opportunity cost of that training intervention. And so back back to my point is is when we get to these very specific types of interventions. We always have to put them under a very fine microscope, a very powerful microscope, and evaluate both the positives and the potential negatives and the opportunity costs that are associated with them to determine if that is a way to go forward. And I think all too often we skip to the, I just want to increase my fat metabolism, regardless of what the consequences are. And that's a training error. Gotcha. 
All right, this this is my um last one for you, I think. Um, <laughs> so. We can keep going, man. I've logged off a lot of time because I knew this was going to go this way. <laughs> um, so so going back to having that one number that tells us everything we want to know, or or three numbers, as as the case may be. <laughs> um, th- this is something that I've. I've always dealt with it, but I feel like it's become more prevalent over the last um, year just because athletes are so, you and I both use a platform called Training Peaks. And now it's much more visible to the athletes. You've got a big, on the side of the calendar, or if you log into the mobile app, right there front and center, it tells you what your fitness is, what your fatigue is, or what your form is for that, for any given day. And I've had athletes, you know, text me and say, oh no, my fatigue says I'm this, what should I do? But on the other side of that, and this is the thing that I've kind of been dealing with quite a bit, is when you have something labeled fitness, you want it to go up. (laughs) And and so that becomes the training goal in and of itself. And so at some point with most of the athletes I work for or work with, they've got a limit on the amount of time they can train whether it's eight hours or 10 hours, and some point that blue line is going to stop going up. And so I'm just curious with when you're working with um, ultra runners, things like that, I imagine the blue lines going up quite a bit more. And so I'm just curious, like, how do you use those tools and what are the caveats with them? Yeah. Uh, uh cautiously and the caveats are many. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we, so in in the trail and ultra running space, we have to be very cognizant of the fact that some of the um, more recent ways that we've that we use to uh, to evaluate training load, whether it's training stress score or whatever the name that Strava uses, what is it now? Suffer score. The name or, Suffer score. Well, no, relative intensity, or is that the yeah? Anyway, factor. <laughs> any any of those things. Um, in, in a trail running perspective is kind of obscured by the surface, fundamentally by the surface that you're running on. And it doesn't matter whether you're using heart rate training stress or running training stress, or you're using the normalized graded pace to determine training stress, or you're using, um, heart rate to determine training stress. The surface will still obscure that to, to, to different extents and certain, and certain, workouts are going to be better with heart rates or workouts are going to be better with, uh, using normalized graded pace and things like that. But it just starts to add a lot of caveats to how you're actually using that because in a trail running situation, it's all, it's very rarely on a consistent enough surface to extrapolate a whole lot of meaning from it. If it is, then great. You can use that. You can use those, you can use those tools. But I think one of the one of kind of the failures of the coaching industry right now is and of coaches as a whole right now is we have taken these, these tools. really, they're really not tools. They're just algorithms, right. That are interpreting the data that's coming back at you. We've, we've taken these algorithms and we've put them so high on this pedestal that they're without scrutiny. So you just, you just said one of them is called fitness right? Which is the 42 day rolling weighted average of your training stress. We've put that up on a pedestal so much that athletes are looking at that and saying, well, if my blue line isn't higher than it was yesterday, I'm less fit. And I think that's a failure because it does not completely describe everything that's going on. All it is literally is a rolling 
42 day weighted average of your training stress. It does not say how fit you are. It doesn't say what your time trial, you know, time is going to be. It doesn't say what your marathon time is going to be. It doesn't even tell you how hard you should work out tomorrow. All it is, is a 42 rolling weighted average of your training stress score. But we've extrapolated it to mean many different things. And I think, I think even Joe, I, I hate to speak for other people, but he's made a couple of comments on this. So I, I don't feel too bad about it. So Joe Friel, who was largely responsible for proliferating all of this, will even say the same thing where it was not meant to describe all of the things that it is now describing. It was just meant to be one tool to help describe training stress. Not everything else that we've interpreted into now, just tra- just training stress. And it was a coach's job to look at that and say, okay, here's a piece of information and here's how I'm going to use that with the athlete. We're going to train harder tomorrow. We're going to train easier tomorrow. We want to target this three months from now and things like that. And I think that that's no better illustrated um, in a phenomenon that's been happening recently where we see training stress scores taking into the periodization process or the training architecture process and they drive the train, right? So you have a coach that says, okay, I want an athlete's, you know, I want an, I want an athlete's CTL to be 120 in March or whatever it is. And they build up this CTL ramp to achieve that goal. And they don't think about how the athlete is actually doing it. And so it's like the CTL tail is wagging the athlete dog, right? You need to be thinking about the athlete first and foremost. And so, so the way that I really view all of those is one, fundamentally, you still have to understand what's going on. It's a rolling 42 day weight day weighted average of training. And I keep repeating that because a lot of people and a lot of coaches make the, this is another one of the mistakes our, our young coaches make. They jump into training, stri- tr- into training peaks and they see fitness and they interpret it as just that. And what it really should say is 42 day weighted rolling average. That's just long, right? Nobody wants it. We do. We want to simplify things, which I'm usually an advocate for, but I think this one, uh, this one kind of misses the mark. Um, and so I think first off, you need to kind of fundamentally understand what is going on that underpins any of those algorithms. And here's a great example of that. I wanted to understand that 10 years ago and training peaks. And I love those guys over there. We've worked with them for many years. They're great friends of mine. I I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate what they do for athletes. They won't tell me what the algorithm is. And I've wanted that for years and it's so proprietary to them. Like, tell me what the waiting factor is. Just tell me that. Like, just come on, just tell me what the 42 day waiting factor is. Cause I want to know what's going on. They're like, nah, we're not going to tell. And I've known them for 20 years. They won't let me know what the secret sauce is. But, but I use that as an example. I use that as an example to illustrate that coaches need to understand what's going on when they see these mechanisms and not just take it as, ah, this is a target I, I, I absolutely need, I absolutely need to hit. So it's just like heart rate variability, You can use it as a tool to understand what's going on, but ultimately you need to alchemize it with other things, including subjective feedback and whatever else you're using. You need to alchemize it with other things in order to make the correct decision for the athlete. It's, it should not be a training tail wagging the athlete dog. You should never use one piece of information, whether it's training stress score or heart rate variability or whatever to solely, or even dominantly, I would say 
determine what an athlete is doing or should do. You need to kind of like put them all together. And unfortunately, just to provide a little bit more commentary on this, unfortunately, because it's easy, right? They're blue, yellow, and pink. They're easy to see. They're easy for people to interpret. It, 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 and it unfortunately has kind of like reduced the barrier to entry for coaches to get in and, and think that they understand what's going on. That has, that has been one of the things that has like proliferated this overuse of those, of those three variables amongst a lot of inexperienced coaches. I think the good coaches can understand what's going on with those numbers. They understand this, the 42 weight, day weighted rolling average of training stress, right? And they know how to interpret that along with whatever else the athlete is doing. But the new coaches, the inexperienced coaches, the ones that don't ask training peaks, what the weighting score is, like I have done many, many times. Come on, Dirk, if you're listening to this, <laughs> give me the weight. <laughs> um, Dirk, is it, what is Dirk's role now? C, CF, uh, CTO, CFO, C, head honcho, whatever. He's one of the heads over there at Training Peaks. That's, chief that's chief evangelist. Have. Yeah, chief, that, you're right. You're right. Chief evangelist. I want that card. Um, <laughs> chief evangelist over at Training Peaks. Um, the, but the coaches that, that have not done their research and not peeled back the onion layers enough with what is going on. They're the ones that are suspect to that error of over-interpreting of, of over -interpreting what you're really figuring out from those variables. And it happens all the time, particularly in cycling, all the time in cycling because they're just so easy to understand and easy to grasp onto. And unfortunately, the, that ease comes at the expense of nuance. Right. And I think it goes back um, to that hype curve, right? I, I always think of it right. with everything, and I, I'm definitely guilty of it, is you get a new tool and you want to use your tool on everything. You know, you're running around the house seeing what needs to be hammered, what needs to be screwed in, a drill. Right. <laughs> you know? right. Right. But, if, right. but eventually right. it goes in your toolbox and it just becomes one of your other tools. And then over time you use the appropriate tool for that job, whatever it is that day. <laughs> and so as a newer coach, you, you see it and it's something exciting and, and it's science. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I mean, I kind of think about like, you remember when the trimp scores, uh, were initially developed, which is it's a heart rate based way of determining training stress. It's, it's the exact same thing. It's just a different, you know, variable that you're measuring heart rate versus power. If the, if, if the fine individuals and the physiologist banister and all those people, if that happened to them, if all of a sudden trimp scores became this thing that all athletes and all coaches said, you know what, if you want to win the Tour de France, you better have a trimp score of 200, you know, for the last six weeks of your training block, they would be mortified. Like a lot of people would think, oh man, that's cool. That'd be a great contribution to science. Like, no, like that's completely taking what you have developed, what you have carefully developed and developed in a very nuanced manner and extrapolating it to the point to where its meaning is lost. The same, the same thing it's, it's starting to course correct, but it has happened with training stress score, CTL, ATL, ATL training stress balance. I mean, you see this, this question get thrown out all of the time by athletes on Twitter who just want the answer. Sometimes the coaches on Twitter, which kind of irritates me. What should my TSB be before my Olympic distance triathlon? It's like, really, really like you, like, that's like, that's just like saying what size bike should I buy? Right. Yeah. I don't know what's your height, like what, you know, what's your previous experience with bikes and things like that. Like you can't just answer that without context. 
And the context for the athlete is what, you know, what have they done previously in training? Were they aspiring to what different things have they reacted to and things like that? You just can't answer that just universally for everybody (laughs) or for an individual without context. So anyway, I, I did the long and the short of that is, is it's, it's another tool. It's a powerful tool. Don't get me wrong. I feel like we're kind of like throwing the stuff under the bus a little bit. It's a powerful tool, but you have to understand what's going on in the background, how the algorithms are generated in order to completely provide the right context and use it with an athlete athlete in an accurate manner. Yeah. No, and I, I agree. Every, again, I, so I think as an economist or somebody who said um, all to, oh, what is it? All models are wrong, but some are useful. Yeah. And, right. You know, right. And, and that's just it is you, you, it's a great tool, but you have to realize that there's shortcomings. And yep. it, it shouldn't like you call it, um, that wagging the athlete. And I always think of it as teaching to the test. Like the, the CTL yeah. isn't the goal of the training, right? It's really for me to look at, okay, what have we been doing recently and how does this week fit into the context of the last three to four weeks kind of thing? Yeah. I, I thought for a while that, uh, running power was going to do the same thing, uh, and running that the power meter did to, to cycling. And I was kind of like, once again, this is why I don't get in the prediction business because I was wrong <laughs> about this. Um, I, I thought that for a while that was that's what was, and it should have materialized by now, I guess is what I'm more right. surprised at. And it really hasn't. I mean, you don't see running power meters very, you see them, but they're not as prevalent as initially I thought they were going to be. The triathletes will, will use them. Triathletes are always the first adopters, even to their own, even to their own fault. And that's no offense to triathletes. I mean, a lot of that has been good, like arrow bars, you know? Um, but, um, uh, I think that part, like part of the, this is, this is total, I think statement, people will throw rocks at me for, for saying this, whatever, I don't care. But I think part of the reason that it hasn't been so widely adopted, running power meter hasn't been so widely adopted to, to date even though it's not that inexpensive to pull off. I mean, there are even watches now that are baking it right into the watch. So you don't need a piece of equipment. But I think part of the reason is, is because people are more aware of the shortfalls of using that as an intensity uh, metric as compared to power meter, power, power meters and cycling. So hopefully that's, you know, an optimistic look at how we're evaluating things for the future where the hype curve gets a little bit flattening the curves all in vogue now. <laughs> Maybe we can like flatten the hype curve a little bit with with being a little bit more deliberate about the way that we evaluate things. Maybe that's going on with running. I I I, I don't know. Maybe it's a cultural thing. But certainly, I mean I remember meeting with the stride guys in their office when it was baked into a heart rate strap, you know, eight years ago or seven years ago or whenever that was. And Half of me saying this is going to like people are going to adopt this rightfully or wrongfully. And I thought it was wrongfully at the time. People are going to adopt this as a power meter and running. And the other half of me trying to give these guys counsel. And I like the guys at stride once again, just because I have disagreements with them. Doesn't mean I think they're good people. They're good people. They're honest people. They're trying to create a great product and things like that. But the other half of me is like, you shouldn't call this power because this is not really power. You're not really measuring force in any meaningful way at all. You're measuring movement. So just come up with something else and call it that and try and stop trying to make the the, the cycling power meter analogy, maybe that's what it ultimately has kind of like slow 
uh, flatten the hype curve. <laughs> um, but I, I don't know. But in, anyway, I mean, I, my original point with that is to use it as, as an example of it hasn't been as widely adopted. And I think that that's generally been, been a good thing because we haven't to date started to overinterpret what we're getting from that from that piece of data, from capturing a da- data in that way, we haven't started to overinterpret it, o- overinterpret that. And I think that that's good for athletes in the long term. When we can flatten the hype curve, I'm coining that, by the way, too. No, I'm, I'm, I'm taking that. That's the title of this uh, podcast now. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Flat, you can have flattening it. Flattening the hype <laughs> curve and the uh, yeah. three-point bullshit test. There we go. There we go. <laughs> um, um, I think when these things come along, if as a community, as an endurance community, we can do a better job of flattening that hype curve and not go through these huge peaks and valleys like what, what we've seen. It's better for athletes in the long run because they don't make as many mistakes. They're more confident in their own innate abilities as opposed to relying on an intervention or a piece of equipment or whatever. It's just good. It's just good for for everybody. And I honestly think that it's also good and I have a particular affinity, a, a, a particular affinity for these types of people. It's also good for the individuals and the companies out there that are trying their darndest to put out things that equipment and interventions and supplements and things like that, that are actually efficacious for athletes in a completely honest and no bullshit way. And it is hard for those individuals to do that because they have to fight down what you fight down as a coach. A lot of the nonsense that's out there, that's just taking up all of the, all of the oxygen in the room. So the long story is, is if we can kind of like flatten the hike curve with these things that go on, it's just good for everybody across the board. Yeah. And I do, it's, you brought up a good point is that you haven't really seen the, um, stride running power meters is it they weren't widely adopted i guess and and i guess i attribute it to me being kind of out of triathlon and and not coaching as many triathletes but um yeah you would expect that you would see all kinds of articles about analyzing it and i think so much of it is that like you said people wanted to extend it to like extend cycling power to running power and so everybody tried to like do the same thing but it just wasn't the same and it wasn't yeah, they're fatal flaw. And I've told them this. This is not, you know, this is not. If they're listening to this, they're not going. They're not going to be shocked by it, or you know, get mad at me or whatever. Because I know I'm not the only person that has given them this counsel. By the way, I, and I'm certainly not the most influential person, obviously, that they reached out to initially when it was coming on. So let's just don't call it power. Like I understand what you're trying to do. I understand that you're trying to back calculate metabolic power, oxygen uptake, and then you're trying to relay that into mechanical power watts. I, I, I understand that, but like figure out a better way to communicate it because what's going to happen. And this was a, I hope statement at the time. I, I don't know if I, I don't, I wouldn't place a bet on whether this was going to be the outcome or not, but what I hoped would happen is that people would see a new piece of equipment and kind of take it for what it is. And that's really what did happen. I mean, there were a lot of, um, not critical, but I would say like nuanced evaluations of what's going on. And I think that that seeped down to the athletes. So the fear that I had of athletes just thinking, Oh, it's cycling has power. Running has power now. Right. My fear of that happening actually didn't come to light because of, individuals out there, athletes, coaches, people who write for lay, lay publications, getting the correct information with the right context and nuance 
to evaluate how to actually use this product. And so I, I think that's actually a good example of like flattening the hype curve down. I'm, I'm sure the stride people will like love the hype curve to go up oh, because that just means they sell like more units. But I think long-term for any company and athletes as a whole, having, having that phenomenon happen is, is, is a good thing because of the peaks and valleys that you avoid you in us as coaches, we don't have to bat down kind of a lot of the nonsense and, and, and things like that. And I should add, I should add the, the kind of final note that I think that there are use cases for that piece of equipment, right? I don't, I'm not going to throw the baby out with the bathwater, just like the fasted training piece. There are probably use cases where that might be effective. They might be few and far between, in my opinion. And I don't use it with my, I've never used it with my athletes, but I still go through the evaluation process of, okay, is this a reasonable tool to use? Is this a reasonable intervention? Same thing with running power. Is this a reasonable piece of equipment that I want to recommend that my athletes go out and buy because we can extract some value out of it? You need to always go through that, uh, always go through that type of evaluation when you're, when you're working with athletes. And sometimes the answer to that question is yes, let's introduce this piece of equipment because it provides value and I know how to, and, and I know how to analyze it properly. I know how to put it in the proper context. And then sometimes it's no for kind of whatever reason. So I'm not like saying, don't go out there and go buy a stride meter, power meter, or buy a new watch that has it baked in there, which is what's happening now. What I am saying is, is that. When you get that information, you have to understand what's going on with it and take it into its correct context. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, so I want to get your thoughts on one last thing here. And I know the last thing is what I said was the last thing, but but this is the last <laughs> thing now. <laughs> you can keep going. I don't care. <laughs> um, so I'm just curious. So I listened to one of your podcasts and you were um, talking to one of the newer coaches at CTS who um, is a strength and conditioning coach. Oh, yeah. And so at that point, you, you had said something. And again, it resonated with me because it's kind of in line with my own thoughts. But um, I'm just curious, what are your thoughts on strength training and, and do you use it with your athletes? And yeah. So just like everything else, it has to be taken into the correct context. And I think like with many other training interventions, we skip to strength training to be part of the de facto stuff that we do with an athlete. And I did this when I was a really young coach. I got a new athlete. It's like, here's your running training, your cycling training, whatever. And here's your strength training, right? It was just part of the whole kind of part of the whole package. And w- what I've learned to appreciate since then is that not all athletes are good candidates for strength training and you have to do it with a really specific purpose. And, you know, when, when athletes come to coaches, they have a specific purpose with that endurance athletic goal. They want to finish the Leadville trail 100 in under 24 hours, which would be the big belt buckle for a runner, or they want to finish it under nine hours for a mountain bike racer, or they just want to finish it at all under 12 hours for the mountain bike or under 30 hours for the run. They're very specific with the athletic, kind of the athletic part of it. And coaches generally doing a good job with getting the mode specific training to match that outcome. So in the runner's case, the run specific training to match the run specific outcome, you have to go and run, right? So if you want to run the Leadville Trail 100 in under 24 hours, you have to go and run. Absolutely. 100%. We might disagree with some of the nuances of the architecture 
I want to do this workout versus that workout. I want to do the specificity piece too early or too early as we were mentioning earlier, as we were mentioning uh, earlier, we might disagree on some of that piece, but fundamentally they're going to run for whatever reason. We don't extrapolate that into strength training and we don't look at it through the same lens of scrutiny as we do with the, with the primary mode. And that's where I think we go awry. We all too often prescribe first off, figure out what you're trying to do with strength training in the first place. Are you trying to just be a healthy individual? You want to be able to pick your kids up. You want to put the suitcase up and the overhead bin when we all used to fly. Remember that? We used to fly and you have to take a freaking carry-on suitcase. I can barely remember that. I'm falling into this. No way. I flew, I flew in March. That was it. Um, but you want to you want to use strength training as a tool for some sort of day-to-day functionality. It makes you feel better, it makes you feel stronger, and things like that. Do you want to use strength training, and this is particularly in running, do you want to use that to prevent injury? Do you want to use that as an ergogenic aid of sorts, specifically to improve your running economy? Now, that's not to say that the prescription doesn't have a Venn diagram overlap between all of those different components, but certainly how you strength train and to the degree that you do it with will have a lot to do with how you answer those questions. What am I, what am I using strength training for? So it's not a, so the first point I want to make is it's not a universal application across certainly all runners or certainly all endurance athletes. The way that you would have to apply it would be, how do you want strength training to actually impact this athlete? Is it the health and wellness thing? Are they older? They're worried about their bone density. Do you want it as an ergogenic aid? Are you trying to prevent injury? And you can design strength training to, 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 to kind of meet those goals. And so that, that's the approach that I, and I've been criticized for this a lot because I don't de facto apply strength training to athletes. I do not. In fact, most of my athletes don't do any strength training. Some of them do, but a lot of them do not. And it's because when we go through that evaluation, I say, okay, based on your goals, you want to finish the Leadville Trail 100 in under 24 hours. You don't care about all these other things. You don't care if you can put your, you know, 30 pound suitcase in the overhead bin or not. It doesn't mean, okay, you're, you're probably not a good candidate for strength training. You don't need to improve your running economy, all these other things. And I guess my point with that is, is that with any type of adjunctive training intervention and adjunctive being something that's outside of the primary mode. So strength training, cross training, altitude interventions, heat interventions, and things like that. You always have to first ascertain what is the goal of this intervention in the first place. And if what you're doing and what you're doing needs to meet the goal. If you're just doing it just because oh, I did strength training in college, right? So this person should do, should do strength training. Once again, the paint by numbers approach, right? Or so-and-so did strength training. So I should do strength training. That's a recipe just to burn the candle at both ends. You're not using your time efficiently. And as you mentioned, most athletes, they can, they only have so many hours a week that they can train and then they can work out. And Strength training not only takes up actual time, you have to go to the gym or if you've got a home base setup, set some time aside, but there's also a training stress associated with it. And there's an opportunity cost to mention that word again. There's an opportunity cost oftentimes, not all the time, but oftentimes associated with doing particularly heavy and explosive and really challenging types of strength training to where you're going to have to take some of the training 
off of the table that you would normally do, particularly in a time crunch situation. So what I encourage, what I encourage people to do is to look at strength training and to evaluate strength training first on what you want to accomplish with it and then determine, are you a good candidate for strength training? I wrote an article about this a couple of weeks ago that you can link to the show notes in. Are you a good candidate for strength training based on a number of different properties? Do you have the time? Is the improvement worth it? All these do, are you trying to prevent injury? Kind of things like that. And then once you've checked all those boxes, yes, I'm a good candidate. Then go down to the, okay, how are we going to program things? Are we going to do heavy stuff? Are we going to do uh, preventative stuff? Are we going to do a combination of both? How do we want to periodize it? Do we have to do it all year? Yes or no. So that's a big, that's a big question, right? You have to maintain it throughout the really heavy training periods, which is, can be at times extremely problematic for any endurance athletes. And in particular for an ultra marathon runner that has a lot of like physical damage to the muscles that are going on. If you're doubling down on that physical damage with heavy strength training there, there, there's a conflict of interest there. Um, so it all, it all comes back to though, what do you want to accomplish with it? And that's, I cannot tell you how many times I've seen that step skipped and go straight to the, okay, let's go do Bulgarian squats on Tuesday. Like why, why are you doing the Bulgarian squats? Is that better than a normal squat? Why not do a step up or reverse lunge or, you know, lunges in your backyard. You know, we kind of, we skip to the, you should be doing this first without evaluating what point is it going to accomplish second. And I see this all of the time. This is rant. Sorry. You, this podcast might be, yeah. like, what's your limit on this? <laughs> you can, you can edit whatever you want to add afterwards. But I see this all the time in the lay literature where they say, okay, here's your leg routine. This happens in like trail running and, and in road running all the time. Here's your leg routine that you should do. It's five minutes. It only takes five minutes. You do it at the end of the run. And it's, you know, this lunge matrix and this step up and calf raises and stuff like that. It's like, wait a minute, what are you trying to accomplish with this? That's not appropriate for everybody that's reading this. It could be too much. It could be too little. It could not make a difference at all. It could actually be negative depending upon the type of athlete that you're doing. If you're saying that here's a leg program for every endurance athlete that you should do across the board, that is a major, and I've seen this a lot, that is a major, major, major training error and violates the fundamental principle of individualization. You could say that with static training programs or whatever, but for whatever reason in strength training, it's a particularly, um, it's a, it's just a big violator of this, of this. Uh, and here's why I think that this is, I think that it's, it's more rabbit. <laughs> no, no, this is, I mean, honest to God, this is why I think this is with endurance coaches because most endurance coaches haven't taken the time to understand strength training to the extent they need to understand it. They'll pass it off onto another like personal trainer or somebody that can actually like be with the athletes and do the lifts with them. But because they've educated themselves in the endurance side of it, and they're typically undereducated on what strength training actually like actually does and actually has to do the movements, they misapply that type of often they often misapply that type of training intervention because they haven't been classically trained in it and they're trying to like hack the thing, like hack the thing together. And this would be a good Dirk's listening to this again. It's the second time we mentioned, mentioned this, he can go out and do this poll. I want to know how many endurance coaches, cycling, running, triathlon coaches have actually gone out of their way 
to be properly educated in strength training. They've gone to the NSCA. The NSCA is right behind my house here. I've done this. Gone to the NSCA, got counsel. Here's how to do the lifts. Here's how to instruct your athletes on how to do the lifts. Here's how to program. The same things that they would do for whatever area of physiology that we typically associate with endurance. Here's how to organize a lactate threshold workout, or here's how to improve your VO2 max or whatever. They took the same amount of caution and care in the strength training side. We wouldn't see it as misapplied as much as we currently do. And for whatever reason, I, this, I think statement, I think that coaches just don't, they just don't take, they just don't take that same level of education and care in, in that particular area, because it's viewed as like a adjunctive thing. They just say, okay, strength training is good. So go do strength training. Yeah, no, I I agree that it's, it's almost like an afterthought. Right. And it's, um, a lot of times it's, but it's a de facto afterthought. That's what's so weird. Right. And so it's like, yeah. Oh, okay. And then here's this. And I, where I, I agree with you on most everything you say. And I, I guess for me, a lot of times when I'm using it, it's, it's more for mobility and for functional strength air quotes. Um, but it's like, it's more about just being able to go through the movements of active activities of daily living, which I picked up when I got certified in strength back in like, you know, 2008 when I was a personal trainer. And it's like, it's really about, can you do the activities of daily living, putting your suitcase up in the overhead, putting a can of soup up on a counter, things like that, working in the garden, you know, especially yeah. as cyclists who do all the movements. Yeah. But I guess what I struggle with is one, I'm a minimalist and I'm pretty simple. And it's like, I, I think just doing like air squats and step ups and things like that, like it's going to accomplish what we want to accomplish doing push-ups, It's a great exercise. But when you've got Kate Courtney on Instagram on some like board where she's like, it's vibrating and she's doing right. all this crazy right. stuff. It's like, it, it's not exciting enough for the athletes. And I, I feel like <laughs> that's like, damn it, Kate, you're ruining it for right. us. <laughs> and you did say something on, on that podcast where it's like the, the uh, what is it? The trap bar where it's like, oh, yeah, God. it's yeah. badass. And that's what like yeah, people yeah. want to be feel badass and and you don't feel badass when you're doing air squats in your living room with a band. Around. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a comparative psychology there, right? I can compare myself to, you know, world champion Kate Courtney. Right? By the way, we both love Kate. <laughs> she's great. She's going to save the sport of cycling, by the way, like she's the perfect person to do it. Cycling needs a, a, a hero and a female hero. And, and I think that she's got all the tools to do that. I have a lot of respect for her and the ways that she's curated her, her career to date. Um, but, 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 but you're right in terms of, we tend to think it, think of it as an after the fact, uh, after the fact type of phenomenon, but it becomes de facto, like you should strength train because you see all these other athletes strength train. What I try to go back to is, is what is the point in your dialogue of, you just want to make sure that people can put soup up in the cabinet or go and mow their lawn and not get hurt. So we're going to do some squats and pushups. That's about it. I mean, that's a very deliberate way I'm going to do. I want to accomplish this. And because I want to accomplish this, I'm going to do that way to, to use strength training as that type of intervention where it goes awry is I want to improve my cycling performance acutely or my running acutely. And I'm going to do air squats. That's probably not happening, but let's just, let's just be honest. You go and do hundred pushups a day. 
that's probably not going to improve your Leadville Trail 100 time one iota. You've just, yeah, you might look better at the beach. It might make you feel better. Maybe there's like some third or fourth or fifth degree translation into performance. You know, you can kind of like follow that chain of events down five or six degrees of separation. Maybe, maybe, but that's a pretty, that's a pretty big leap to say your hundred pushups a day is what catalyzed you to, to, you know, the do the Leadville trail 100 mountain bike in nine, in, in nine hours. So that's where it typically goes awry is when we, when we are do in strength training and we do this a lot, we, I see this a lot when you're using it in a way that is contra, not contraindicated, but does not match up with what the intent was. You're doing pushups to go under 24 hours in the Leadville Trail 100 run. That's where it, that's where it tends to go awry. And there's no real negative to that in most circumstances, other than I look at that and I'm like, whoever prescribed that is a moron. So, you know, you're not getting my follow on Twitter for whatever that's worth. Um, um, but it's, it's the, so there's usually not like a egregious negative associated with that programming error. Most of the time, some of the times if you get them into Olympic lifts and they're not, you know, then they're not ready for it or it's misapplied, then you can have a maladaptation to that or they can get injured or whatever. It's just a disagreement of cause and effect, right. Of action and outcome. Uh, and, and what that's more of an irritation point than anything else, but it's still real. I mean, it's still real. You still accomplish the things that you want to accomplish with a particular training intervention. Perfect. All right. Um, first off, so many rabbit holes, which is, which is exactly what I want. (laughs) I, 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 and I probably have like four more that I'd like to go down, but I (laughs) think we'll have to do part. Yeah. We'll save it for the next one. Um, that, that way the listeners will like know what they're getting into. They're like, ah, I've heard skip before. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see. You can compare your listeners from one to the other and we'll see what it does. I, uh, I, I really appreciate your time. And like I said, I, I respect you a lot and I've been following you for a while. And so, um, glad we finally made this happen. Where can people follow you on the interwebs? Well, if they want to know <laughs> if that's true or not, um, uh, it, it, it's pretty simple. It's Jason Coop with a K, K-O-O-P on both Twitter and Instagram. Um, I don't do a whole lot on Facebook. I've kind of like abandoned that platform just for a myriad of reasons. Um, but I do a lot of cool things on Instagram every Wednesday. I'll do a story where I just answer people's questions and things like that. And a lot of this debunking comes through that. I call it Wednesday wisdom and it's really fun for me. Yeah. It's really fun for me because I have to take something like you just mentioned, should I strength train and I have to get it down to like a 20 second clip. And so I have to take this huge body of information and put it down into something that's accurate and digestible enough to like put on Instagram. And yeah, a lot of the nuance is lost and stuff like that, but it still forces me to like explain things better. And hopefully there's a lot of value uh, out there for people. So either, either one of those platforms um, also have a weekly newsletter that comes out on the train right site, which is who I work for CTS. And uh, I take a lot of the, just the things that I find everywhere and I put them into a blog slash slash newsletter. Like, and it could be anything from state of the sport like this week, which is where we're recording on September 22nd. Um, just came out this morning was on, uh, uh, how I think ultra running is going to go through another boom. The week before that was how to use blood biomarkers. So it's a wide range of 
physiology, practical state of whatever types of things that I put into that you can go find those at trainright.com and, and subscribe and have a lot of fun with both of those. Awesome. And then you had mentioned that um, for new coaches, you, or I guess you didn't mention it today, but it was on the podcast that um, a lot of times you had a gift basket. And part of that was the lore of running. So um, what other recommended reading or listening uh, would you suggest? Uh, yeah, listening is actually a good part because I've actually put in podcast feeds to that now. I, I kind of tailor it to each individual coach. Um, so if they come in with like a really heavy physiology background, I don't need to give them the lore running. If they don't have much of a uh, background in using a power meter, I'll have like uh, a training racing with power meter, which is something that your listeners will be familiar with. Uh, but the, commons one, the common ones are those two. I have a few podcast feeds that we can uh, kind of include in the show notes. I like Michael Gervais' uh, uh, podcast where he does a lot of sports psychology stuff. I like, um, oh man, I'm blanking on, it's the ISSN's uh, podcast feed. We Do Science uh, podcast. Um, I like that one. Uh, Science of Ultra does a really good job, particularly in the ultra marathon world. Um, but really it's a, it's kind of a, this basket um, to paint that picture a little bit. So we've, they've already gone through like the hiring, the screening and hiring process. So we kind of like know what they come to the table with. And we take our run of show for onboarding any particular coach and we'll modify it and customize it depending upon the cohort that we bring in. So we, we're usually bringing in a few coaches at a time. So if that cohort needs a lot of work on whatever nutrition, we'll just beef up that area. If they need a lot of work on psychology, we'll beef up that area. But the co- the common ones are lower running, training racing with the power meter. Obviously all of our publications that, that, that we put out, Time Crunch Cyclist and Type Crunch Triathlete are, are big hit ones. And those are more to kind of standardize the vocabulary more than anything else. Uh, we have an internal manual uh, uh, that we give them and then the podcast feeds. And it's kind of a just dump it all on them and let them let them sift through it for the first several weeks. It's a good one. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, I would love to do a second one in the future. Yeah. Anytime this was fun. Yeah. I hope it does well for you to kick off of season three. That's huh? right. Unofficial season three, but yeah, Unofficial season. started with a bang. It'll be hard to top this. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. We'll see if it goes up, down, or something. Maybe I'll just split it into like f- four or five episodes. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, there you go.